Good evening. My name is Bernard Sanders. Face it, you don't find too many socialists in elective office in this country. It's crazy to, to read, it really is. This is why it's such, a, such an interesting story. Why were they so opposed to having Sanders as mayor? <laughs> they went out of the Democratic Party. <laughs> he nominates for this position of a fourth constable, this guy who it turns out had died two weeks earlier. <laughs> Many people in Burlington are still in a state of shock following that city's most stunning political upset in memory last month. And what did it lead to? I mean, it ultimately led to the, the runs that he made in 2016 and 2020. Hello and welcome back to Blueprints the podcast about political strategies from 1 of 200. We're on a mid-series break at the moment, working on some incredible stories about Aotearoa New Zealand's political history. But today, we're sneaking out a bonus episode on how Bernie Sanders won the Burlington mayoralty in 1981. This episode is kind of three campaigns rolled into one, because Sanders not only won in 81, but he got re-elected two years later in 83 and secured more council seats for an election in the year between. The episode is based heavily on an amazing, in-depth feature piece that one of 200 hosts Bronco worked for Jacobin. Really recommend reading it once you've done listening. My name is Bronco Marchetich. I am the staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. I am also the co-host of One of 200, a podcast about New Zealand and international politics. I guess the other thing I, I maybe am known for is, is writing a book about Joe Biden that was quite critical of him. No one wants to read anymore. <laughs> Coming up to the 2020 US presidential election, Sanders announced he was going to run again. And I thought well, it would be great to actually look at his career because everyone knows the stuff he stands for, everyone knows the stuff that he believes. The fundamental issue facing us in the state is that one half of 1% of the people the richest one half of one percent earn as much as the bottom twenty-seven percent, and the top three percent earn as much we as the bottom forty. We are going to raise the federal minimum wage to fifteen bucks an hour. So I wanted to go back and look at his career and say, what does his governing style as say mayor tell us about how he might govern as president? It, d- does his life and accomplishments does it actually live up to this kind of like the story he tells about yeah. himself and that people tell about himself? Yeah. Ours is a rich and variant land. We are a prospering people. Wherever we live or earn our livelihood, we have bounties beyond those known to the people of any other day. By the time Sanders runs for mayor, the post-war settlement of the New Deal is beginning to fall apart. In the 70s, you have a series of strains on the economy and American society that starts to unravel that consensus. You have the Vietnam War, you have immense government secrecy and and government suppression of civil liberties and activist groups, people campaigning for racial justice. You also have this series of economic crises, you have a recession, you have uh, massive inflation because of the oil shocks, post-civil rights, a bit of a backlash from, from sort of white suburban people against some of the gains of civil rights and, and what they saw as some of the excesses. So by the end of the 1970s, you have a conservative turn back, a, a counter-revolution, you might say. And by 1981, when Sanders is running for mayor, 
the person running for president and who will eventually win, as we know from, from our patchen history, is Ronald Reagan, who is very much like the Donald Trump of his time. Incredibly extreme, right-wing, very inflammatory, uh, I guess you could say populist. He's a celebrity as well. And he was saying... Government the is the problem. Government should get out of our lives. It is time to check and reverse the growth of government which shows signs of having grown beyond the consent of the governed. We should cut taxes and that'll be better for the economy. We should make it easier to, to be able to buy guns, for instance, and, and unravel a whole host of civil rights protections. And, and he was, for, for his efforts, rewarded with a, an endorsement from the Klan, a Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard, which he did not disavow immediately. Good morning, Jane. A couple of facts. Burlington is the largest city in Vermont. The state has about a half a million people. Burlington has about 38,000. Situated as it is on Lake Champlain with the Adirondack Mountains view, viewable, it's a lovely, lovely spot. Though Vermont is now seen as a bit of a progressive bastion, in the 1970s it was rock-solid conservative. But by the end of the decade, its demographics had begun to change, and the story of how Bernie Sanders came to live there is emblematic of the wider trends which helped to pave the way for the political transformation that was about to occur. Sanders at that point had been, he'd, he'd gone to university, he graduated, he was involved in some of the civil rights struggles there in Chicago. He uh, went to live in a kibbutz for a little while, which he said was, was like his ideal form of existence. He thought it was amazing. And then he moved to a rural part of Vermont, where he sort of lived in this very rural part of the state, without many people there. I think he lived in a shack that didn't have running water and that kind of thing. And I guess tried to, to kind of do the, the back to the land kind of thing that a lot of hippies um, and kind of cultural people were doing at the time. And then by the 70s, he is established. He's, he's in Burlington with his son. He's, he's given up the back to the land thing, but he's still very involved politically in, in all the different struggles. He was part of a movement. The fact that this guy from, from New York and then who lived in Chicago went to a, a random part of rural Vermont it was part of a wider trend where first it was young professionals, then it was the sort of counterculture radicals and, and, and hippies. That group of people ended up moving to Vermont in about the 60s and 70s. But this influx of outsiders starts to change it because suddenly you get this markedly pretty progressive group of people coming in and you know making their, their voices heard, becoming a political force. And I think that is a really important context. You know, Sanders didn't come in and... and changed things all by himself, he rode a wave, or he was part of a wave of, of people and people's movements. The, the anti-nuclear movement, you have the women's movement, the, the gay rights movement, and a whole host of other kind of progressive left-wing movements that this crowd is getting involved in and that, that really get a foothold in Vermont, and particularly Burlington, as the, the biggest city. Throughout the 70s, he'd been involved in electoral politics, running as a candidate for the Senate for a small left-wing third party called Liberty Union. It was the political party that was supposed to be the tribune for these activists who would come into the state. Very radical left-wing. I mean, during the campaign in 2020, someone found, uh, and CNN found, like, Sanders' old platform that he was running on, basically running on, like, nationalizing everything, <laughs> you know. But that was the kind of party it was. It was very, very radical. He had run, I believe, three times. Were they trying to win? I think no one really thought they were going to win. But they, they really did run serious campaigns. I mean, at least Sanders did. He, he really crisscrossed the state in his beat-up car, you know, uh, going to different radio stations and, and talking and, 
and and trying to get to as many people as possible. And actually, every year that he ran, even though Liberty, Liberty Union never came close to winning power. Each time, they scraped together a few more votes, ending up in the late 70s by getting around 9%, which in the US, with its distinctly two-party system, wasn't awful. But after these runs in 1977, Sanders actually gives up on electoral politics and turns to making documentaries for television. Ruth, you're a volunteer worker at the old north end of food, food co-op co here in Burlington. Right. Um, disability, Social Security. You got cut from $131 to? $48. And what was the justification for that? How do they expect you to live on that difference? Well, they don't care. But the people involved with Liberty Union? Things are kind of stagnated, you know, those campaigns are not going anywhere. So I think there was a bit of a, a rut, I guess, for people where it was like things weren't really changing as, as they hoped. As 1981 approaches then, and the Burlington mayoral race comes into view, some people who'd been active in the fledgling radical political movement of the city had made an assessment that this time, the objective conditions could be right for actually having a chance to win an election. First off, the incumbent, Mayor Gordon Paquette, Paquette is not widely liked anymore. He's not as popular as he was. There's a lot of discontent in the city. Paquette had been in there for a very long time. You know, th that happens naturally with any uh, government that's in power for a while. People just inherently are sort of like, maybe it's time for a change. Bellington had been controlled by the Republicrats, as they were called. Uh, basically a Democratic machine with some Republican support. They had been controlled by them for decades. Paquette had basically just run unopposed many, many times. He'd essentially never lost an election, in fact. And so they just gone complacent. And so they didn't have all these traditional, very basic campaign techniques <laughs> that turned out to be really vital, like, you know, going out and speaking to people and door knocking. But beyond that as well, things had gotten worse in the city pretty progressively over the course of his, his mayalty. He was under the thumb of of the city's business establishment. And he just basically did whatever they wanted him to do. There was an Italian-American community that had their entire kind of neighborhood knocked down to make way for more, you know. And that angered a lot of people, obviously. But then also rents were getting higher, people's wages were stagnating, city services were declining. And at the same time as well, the property tax and other taxes kept going up at the same time as all this is happening, he is running on another tax increase. Like a, It was a 65 cent tax increase on the property tax. So people were like, well, Jesus, we're going to have to pay even more now. And then that's where Sanders' anti-property tax campaign comes in. It's sort of, he, he outmaneuvers him. We'll come back to that tax maneuver soon. Off the back of that discontent, a professor of religion at Vermont University, Richard Sugarman, who actually became Bernie's advisor in his 2016 presidential run, had begun to dig into the voting statistics for Sanders' runs with the Liberty Union. He points out to Sanders, he says, if you look at the way that the votes broke down last time you ran, you have a natural constituency in the poorest wards in the city. And we can maybe, if we can lift up voter turnout there, you might be able to win. And at the same time, a radical activist and journalist, Greg Goomer, had spotted the same thing. And he made his own plans to run. He was going to be running on this, the, the line of this other party called the Citizens Party, which was basically made up from the ashes of Liberty Union when that kind of collapsed. And, and he pointed out, and if there's a third challenger, if there's someone that splits that, that establishment vote, a third party insurgent could, could run through. So 
you have this position where in 1981, you have Paquette, who's running again, unopposed, of course. You have Sanders, who's being urged to, to run for mayor. And then you also have Greg Goomer, who also has his own mayoral campaign, which could threaten to split the progressive vote. So it's very complicated uh, actually going into the, the race. Richard Sugarman, the academic who'd spotted Sanders' support in the poor districts, was the key person urging and persuading Sanders that he had to run this time. Sanders' allies see is that A, he, he's a good campaigner. People, people like him. They think he's a good communicator. Rolls up all the things that people are, are saying and thinking into, into a coherent narrative that he's able to give to, to other people. In the end, Sanders obviously does run, but the story of why he ends up as an independent and why Greg Goomer stands aside is instructive. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it speaks to, I think, him, his psychology and how he, how he works as a, as a person and as a politician. Sanders basically said, I'm running no matter what. You can either run and we'll split the, the vote or you can bow out and, and Guma bowed out in the end. So that, that raised some people's hackles. They, they weren't super happy. They just unilaterally decided to do this rather than going through a party. So there was a bit of a rift there. He, he has this philosophy, this, this, this kind of feeling about activists, even though he, he obviously needs the support of activists and he's very much part of the activist community, he nonetheless views a lot of kind of left-wing or radical activists as, as, as like college-educated know-it-alls, I believe is the quote that was given to me by, by Terry Baricius, who basically try and impose their own views of, of on everything and on how people should live onto people and don't have connection to the the working class that theoretically any socialist movement should come out of and and i think he a didn't want to be saddled with them if a party passes something that he disagrees with he then has to sort of run on it and defend it he didn't want to be in that position he wanted to run a campaign where he was the one Hit him and his allies and his kitchen camera were the ones who were, who were deciding things. And what did he actually run on? What did he do with the freedom of not being tied to political party? Firstly, a bit about Sanders' politics more broadly, because it's key to understanding the choices he and his team made. Because I, I think the thing about Sanders' career, I'm not saying this is the way to go for, for activists, but certainly when it comes to electoral politics, um, he intentionally skewed this kind of ultra-left position. And his, I think, philosophy was to try and meet people where they were, roughly, to push at the edges and to, to maybe convince people, persuade them to go further than what they thought was possible, what they what they were told was, was possible or, or appropriate. And so, yeah, I mean, when he ran for mayor, what he did was he, he did not make a bunch of... He did not run a traditional left-wing campaign as he had done previously when i say traditional i mean the sort of you know just this kind of classically kind of bomb throwing sort of i'm going to criticize everything and yell at everything and, and and talk about foreign policy and that kind of thing he didn't do any of that was was very very fiery as a as a orator in terms of his critique of the the the, the mayoral administration but there are a couple of key issues to demonstrate the orientation of his team toward doing what was necessary to win there was his policy on taxes and his support and endorsement from the police union. The, the US was in this massive anti-tax mood that had come from the late 70s, and Sanders kind of used that to his advantage. At the same time, Reagan, an anti-tax right-wing radical, gets elected. 
on an anti-tax platform. Sanders also launches his own anti-tax left-wing platform. But he's saying the problem is the property tax. The, the property tax is unfair, it's regressive. What, what we should do is we should get the people who can pay to pay and then get the government off people's backs when it comes to the property tax. He, he spoke to very specific citywide and he was able to bring them into his wider critique of American society, right? That it was controlled by a handful of businesses, that it was controlled by the rich, that ordinary people didn't have a say in the affairs of their own lives. And the second issue was his decision to court the police as an ally. I, I think this is a, a good example of, of where he may have been handcuffed. The Citizens Party in like early 81 passes a, a resolution that opposes more money for for police officers, so higher salaries. And this is, police in the city were really pissed off at the time because they hadn't been getting paid properly for a very long time. And there was a bunch of mass resignations the year before. So that was a very disgruntled part of the, the Burlington workforce. But the Citizens Party decided that they would not basically back the police officers. Sanders' position was that, no, the police are workers, and, and he was running on, no, I want to improve police salaries, improve city services there. That was why he ended up winning the support of the police union in the campaign, which was a massive turning point in the campaign for, for Sanders to, to make him be seen as a, as a legitimate and, and real contender. And I think it's important as well to note that he won the police vote or police support in that race at the same time that in 81, police had gone for Reagan. So around the country, police were voting in basically a, a far right direction yeah. as they continue to. But in Burlington, he managed to get them on his side. So that's, that's yeah, a right. significant thing. Yeah. With those two issues as good examples of their efforts to appear credible and focused on Burlington issues, rather than broader national political debates. The campaign strategy itself did a lot of that grassroots campaigning and that was probably key to his victory. I mean, that, that's really been the key to his to every single victory he's had is just the willingness to knock on more doors, to talk to more people, to do more media, to, to hustle more. And as they set out to hustle the streets and pound the pavement with a ragtag team of friends and allies, they didn't really expect to win. I don't think they expected to win, no. It was, it was a shock to everyone. They thought, okay, well, if we do well here, then maybe the next election you can always run. So the fact that he won by, in the end, it was 10 votes. It was a complete, completely stunning. It stunned, I think, Sanders and his camp. It stunned political observers in the city. It stunned uh, Gordon Paquette and his allies, needless to say, who were just shell-shocked. Shell-shocked and then furious that this had happened. So not, no one expected it to happen. They, they, people were surprised at how well he did. The victory that we won tonight is in fact not only a victory for Burlington, I think, it's a victory for the United States of America. You don't find too many socialists in elective office in this country, and one is elected mayor of a sizable city. Well, that's news. Had a lot of attention recently, not only with his 10-vote victory out of about 9,500 votes cast. Many people in Burlington are still in a state of shock following that city's most stunning political upset in memory last month. Bernard Sanders, one of the founders of the Liberty Union Party 
and a consistent loser in previous quests for elective office was now the big winner. Considered by many to be unelectable because of his so-called radical views, Mr. Sanders put together an unlikely coalition of supporters and edged the 10-year incumbent Gordon Paquette. Mr. Sanders was sworn in as mayor of Burlington on April 6th. Tonight, our Vermont Report guest is Burlington Mayor Gordon... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that awful? Is that awful? I won the election, I think, because we effectively put together a coalition of low-income people, elderly people who in Vermont are very often up against the wall economically in very bad shape. Some of our city trade unions... Uh, the cops supported you, didn't they? The police department supported us, yes. The uh, Patrolmen's Association did, right. So you, we, you had police officers voting for you who probably voted for Ronald Reagan. Well, I'm not so sure that I don't know if I can say but that's that. Certainly... But the police officers in our particular city are earning their trade unionists. And they're earning very low wages, and along with many other workers in our city, want some fundamental change. Also, we have in our city particular problems, I believe, with the police department that they've been concerned about, very low morale. So it didn't particularly surprise me. As Sanders gets ready to enter office, there's a whole slew of problems waiting for him. He had a fiscal crisis on his hands, where the government just was was barely able to operate and so they had to have some sort of tax increase but packets 65 cent increase had basically just been rejected in that election and so at the same time you've got people quitting i mean things were so bad financially in the city that one of his advisors jenny stoller his economic advisor she's going through the books and she says basically this particular secretary is quitting which is actually a problem because now we're gonna have to pay out her severance pay which is gonna basically tip us over the edge financially. In the end, they were left with no alternative but to run a mini campaign advocating for their own tax increase. What I think needs to happen now is for there to be public debate, public debate as to how much money the people of Burlington are prepared to spend. It's a, it's a 25 cent increase in the end. It's just enough to keep the government afloat and running okay, but it's also going to mean besides that tax increase, they're going to have to raise fees and other charges and stuff and he, he admits you know this is a as regressive a budget plan as any previous so already not not that good his position was let's get the property tax off people's backs and let's shift the tax burden onto the rich and businesses and there wasn't just a budget black hole to deal with but also the political reality of being an insurgent who enters into the position of mayor with the city's alderman which is the u.s word for a council being run by Democratic opponents who differ from you ideologically and who are furious that Sanders had beaten their guy. Only one of his allies, only one Citizens Party person actually won an election. That was Terry Barishas. So the city council effectively is still controlled by the Democrats, who he just handed a pretty shocking defeat to. And they're not happy, but the weak mayor system meant that Sanders had to rely on the the city council, the board of aldermen, to get anything done, basically. And they just weren't going to let him have it. And the types of things that they did to block him and his team from carrying out their plans were wild. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to, to read. It really is. And this is why it's such a such an interesting story. The obstruction that they launched against him was so over the top and ridiculous that, well, it, 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 sort, of, it sort of backfired on them. But what they did was... They turn their backs on him at the inauguration. They fire his secretary, who was his campaign manager. Yeah, so they fire, they fire 
incredibly petty. Incredibly petty. When he's trying to get the uh, tax increase, at one point they're going to have this big town meeting where all the public is going to be there. And then the, the aldermen just vote to, to table discussion. You know, again, an incredibly petty, meaningless thing because ultimately they support the increase, mm-hmm. the tax increase. But it just purely just to show him, you know, you, we're boss here. And Sanders would say a year later, you know, I will, I will never forgive nor forget when the council fired my secretary. That, that basically set the tone. Sanders wants to get rid of some of the people that were the, uh, the appointees that, that ran different like commissions and departments in, in the city government, and he wants to replace them with his own people. That's really the, the main way that he can have power in the city is by putting his own appointees to run these different things. Obviously, the, the Democratic aldermen realize that, and so they, they basically vote down every single one of his appointees. Without a constructive council, and with a paper-thin mandate, and with bugger-all experience of running a city, they had two things to do, really. One was to prove their credibility and legitimacy in the eyes of residents, and the other was to govern in a different way, making good on the promise of what a radical politician could do in elected office. We'll come to that second point later. The next mayoral election was only two years away, and if they'd won in 1981, the city had ended up tanking, then the legitimacy of people espousing the kind of politics that Sanders was would have also tanked. So they immediately looked out and found things that could cement their reputation as effective governors of day-to-day things. The, the spring fling, it's this annual raucous like party that, that university students have. It's always, you know, people, homeowners in, in Burlington were always annoyed at it because there's a lot of, you know, rubbish being thrown around and, you know, people are acting like idiots and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Sanders took a pretty hard line. He said, you know, yeah, we want to have a good time, but if anyone is caught breaking the law, they're going to be arrested and we're not going to tolerate any sort of vandalism and property destruction and that kind of thing. And it goes pretty well. It, it's one of his early successes, you know, the newspapers say. It was a, a much quieter spring fling than in previous years. You know, the mayor did a good job here. So, you know, he wins p- points there. His allies and advisors were also insistent that they run the city as efficiently as possible and show that socialists aren't the spendthrifts that their opponents claim. So they try and find cost savings all the time. They, they put things out to bid that were not out to bid before because they were basically just... Hand, you know, city contracts handed out to people who were connected mm. or to people who were invested mm. in various ways uh, and we're going to make money out of it. They say, no, we're going to put that out to bid. We're going to save money. We're going to do things like bulk purchases. Rather than having every department buy its own equipment mm. individually, we're going to do bulk purchasing and then save money that way. He has a highly praised, widely praised response to union negotiations where he decides to negotiate in good faith with union and he, he tells them straight up we don't have the money to do all this stuff but you know here's what i want to do to make sure that we can basically keep things from getting worse and hopefully in the future we'll be able to do better because he's so frank and open and it actually is cheaper because they for the first time in maybe ever they didn't have to hire a, a professional negotiator uh he has a battle with the the city health insurer blue cross because he says that the city government is basically being ripped off by them, which he was correct. It doesn't go successful successfully. He does not manage to, to win that battle. But it's 
one of the things that, that people talk about, you'll see in some of these newspaper reports at the time, is people say, you know, well, I, I like that. He, I see him hustling out there. I see him trying. And even though he, in this first year, he doesn't really manage to do a whole lot because of just the the institutional constraints and the political constraints on him. The fact that he is trying to do all this stuff to make people's lives better, that, that people appreciate that. And part of this hustling was running the city in a different way, bringing citizens and residents and activists into City Hall and making change with them collectively. So he does things like he sets up these advisory boards for women, for youth, for renters. And he basically just has volunteers come in and they sort of advise him and they get volunteers to do certain things and, and put forward ideas for certain initiatives. He, for instance, starts having a bi-weekly a sort of a, a, a late session where public can come in, they talk to him and they give him ideas. And he, he has this thing called the, the People's Circus where he gets volunteers, artists and all, uh, acrobats and musicians and all these people to come in from a, across Burlington. He says it's a time for people and families to enjoy themselves. And, you know, there's like a, there's something like very powerful and political in that and just letting people mm-hmm. enjoy their lives and, and, and seeing that the government can actually add something of value to their lives. If I were the president of the largest bank in Burlington, I'd be real nervous about you. Well, they may be. They may be. Uh, But I think, and they are, but I think what we've often talked about also is that my powers as mayor are in many ways limited. And I have my visions as to what life should be in Vermont, in Burlington, and in the United States. But within Burlington, I acknowledge everybody knows what my powers are, and they're very limited. We are not going to go around nationalizing banks or nationalizing industry. In fact, we want industry in Vermont that pay decent wages, and we're going to go out and bring that in like every other mayor in the United States is. He puts forward this meals and rooms tax. So it's a small 2% or 3% tax on receipts from for, for hotels and restaurants. And he says this is part of his, his way to wean the system off the, the property tax. He says, if we do this, we shift the burden onto businesses, and, and it's a very small tax, so it's not going to hurt them. But that way we can lower the property tax. Um, then he has this whole, he has to go to uh, Montpellier, the, the, the capital in Vermont, to, to fight with the, um, the, the state politicians because they, they see him doing that and they go, no, wait, no, you can't do that. We only have the power to tax. They, they want to guard their monopoly on, on that particular form of tax. And so he has to go there and he argues with, with the state representatives there and he ha- actually has, gets this whole lobbying movement from the other cities in Vermont to go to the state uh, and to basically say, don't do this, don't stop him from levying this tax. He doesn't win the ability to actually, uh, he doesn't win, sorry, the tax itself, but he wins the ability to be able to levy it in a future time. So that's that's one victory. He also gets city government involved in renters' issues and, and just general labor issues. He takes the side of labor. He he meets with disgruntled department store workers and he says, you know, the city will support you with what you're trying to do. Given Sanders and his team had never been in local government before, there were some absurd things that happened. Some of them, though, weren't his fault. The FBI comes to visit him like a week into his time as mayor and they interview him. Part of a case going on in the New York court, uh, which I'm not going to go into because it's, it's not important. But basically the FBI comes knocking. Even the, even the main newspaper of Burlington, the Burlington Free Press, says this is outrageous. Why is the FBI visiting 
the mayor on the first day that that, that he's in power. The things like uh, he gets a ticket in his car because his car is a, is a pile of crap. And so he's parking in the mayor's space and someone obviously thinks, well, hold on, somebody's taking the mayor's space. So they put a ticket in there. And then, well... He nominates for this position of a fourth constable, this guy who it turns out had died two weeks earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, the, the, of course, the council jumps in and they go, oh, he's coming apart the seams. He's not able to hack it anymore. He's, he's losing his mind. You know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And Santa's, you know, admitted, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, to be fair to him, in his inauguration, he did tell people, I will make mistakes. I, I, I know I will, but, like, I'm going to work for the city. The 1982 Alderman elections approached. They were one year after his victory of mayor and would do or die for the movement around Sanders. Either the city was satisfied and encouraged by what they tried to do and would vote for more of his allies into council, which would then allow a proper enactment of their vision. Or people thought his ideas were silly, that he wasn't achieving anything and he never would. So they'd stick with the incumbent. It was particularly pivotal in this election because it was a 13 member city council or board of aldermen and in this case seven seats were going up for uh, re-election so if they won five seats of the seven sanders people would have control they would have majority control over the the city council which means that sanders actually could actually do something and so once again they launched on this furious door knocking campaign you know going around in, in snow again very very brutal Vermont winters. I, I have been to Vermont when it's cold, and I can tell you it is, it is quite quite hard. Stay, being outside all day in in the Vermont cold, whether you're moving around door knocking or not, is is not fun. And so they're yeah they're doing door knocking. They're dropping leaflets. They're doing everything they can to try and get as many people to come out and to get people who would have voted for maybe Packet to to go for Sanders. And in the end, the the proof of concept works. I mean. Turnout goes way up. So even beyond what had happened in, in 1981, I believe they only win three seats in the end. But it's a significant... Mm. What basically happens is it's, it's this very, very clear rebuke of the city Democrats who had spent that entire year going... Their proof of concept was, if we just stop this guy from being able to do anything, mm. then he'll be a failure and people will punish him. But what happens instead, because... Sanders has such a high profile, such a well-publicized fight. But I think it really turns some people who were maybe on the fence about Sanders or who didn't, you know, who thought maybe, oh, he seems like a nice man. I don't know if I totally agree with his politics, but okay, whatever, he's in power. It turns them into, puts them into the Sanders column and pushes them in because they see what's happened over the past year. And there's this tremendous resentment over the Democratic aldermen who are working to to stifle him they say why don't they just let him do his job what didn't you like about it nothing i didn't like anything about it bernie was tickled to death that i got elected and terry you and terry got elected the same time same same time yeah sadie white was this like old style roosevelt democrat like union worker and and she'd been a state representative for a long time and then she got basically taken out in a in a Democratic primary. They said you're too old, and she was like, "Fuck that!" And so, out of spite, she ran for for Democratic alderman in Burlington against a Democrat and won. And she ended up being one of his allies. But anyway, there's a great clip of her where she talks about some of the stuff, you know, why she liked Sanders. 
People talk about those days as being pretty difficult for Bernie to even get his own secretary in there. Yes, was that oh true? Lord, yes. They had, didn't want uh, Linda to be in there at all. She, they said she couldn't type. Oh, they had any kind of a thing that you could imagine to say about it because they didn't want her to have it because mm -hmm. he wanted her because mm -hmm. he had appointed her. What did Bernie represent when he became mayor, and why did you support him so strongly? Because it was a change in City Hall that I wanted, and I got it. And I didn't want everything always down, down there, and nobody else had anything to say about it. This little bunch right here was doing it, and I didn't have anything to say about it. I got so I'd like to talk. I told you I did. And so that's why I wanted to talk. And why was it so closed? Why was government so closed? Because they kept it that way. They you think it's it. improved over the last 10 years? Oh, yes. I, I, Bernie helped it. Yeah. Bernie helped open it up. Why were they so opposed to having Sanders as mayor? <laughs> they went out of the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> so was it the Democrats that were the most bitter? Or oh, was of course it was. Of course it was. How about the Republicans? I don't know so much about that. <laughs> and Republicans have been a, like, uh, almost a non-entity in the city for decades. The Republicans had already shown a lot more inclination to want to work with Sanders as mayor than the de Democrats had. He can actually negotiate with them and, and compromise with them, whereas with the Democratic alderman it was just nothing. So, from 82 onwards, his position in the city and his ability to do things is just far, far greater. He doesn't win a majority on the board, but the Democrats are cowed enough. They, they now have to play ball. And it all comes down to, I, th I think, the, the effort they put into really making city government a force in people's lives, a positive force in people's lives that, that um, helped it to happen. I wish I had something very profound to say this afternoon. I don't. Uh, the main function for me today, and I'll be happy to answer anybody's questions, is to thank the people of the state of Vermont for their tremendous vote of confidence in me. Uh, going into the election yesterday, we thought we had a real chance to win. Uh, we did not expect to come out of it with a 17 or 18 point lead. Sanders and his team go on to win that 1983 mayoral election with 52% of the vote. I mean, now, I mean, of course, Bellington is known as. And, and Vermont in general are known as progressive stalwarts and progressive bastions. And that's not only because of Sanders and the progressive coalition, but I mean, th that is a large part of it. That, that mayoral victory, because a lot of the Democrats looked at that and they said, well, he's, he's winning over the people that should be voting for us. So we need to maybe start doing things differently. Otherwise, this could happen on a much bigger scale than just beyond Billington. So it does shift pol it does help to shift politics to to the left, and uh, you know I think Billington's viewed by the late 80s as, as the you know one of the most livable cities in in the United States as well as being a very progressive place. Mm. A little misleading, of course. It's similar to how people talk about Auckland as one of the most livable cities in the in the world and all this stuff. And then the reality is, of course, Auckland is a very difficult place to live. Billington, it's it's had issues and those have gone worse with housing and, and the cost of living in general but you know for the most part the city transformed i mean everyone talks about uh there was a positive transformation for the city and and a lot of that was to do with with sanders and the people that were allied with him in the automatic board for the first you know decade in the 80s having studied the period 
and spoken to everyone involved at the time, I asked Bronco what his reflections were and what he thought that we could take away from it today. One is the importance of, of being able to take some of the talking points of the right and of, of the kind of the business establishment and, and, and turn it against them. I mean, that's a classic strategic move as you make someone's strength their weakness. And, and I think that's what he did with the property tax thing. Uh, and I think he was right. And I think it's important to, to not just think of it as a knee jerk, like, oh, you know, it's anti-tax. So therefore, you know, if we're on the left, we have to be pro-tax. You know, the, the main thing is to look at what is going to make people's lives better what's going to make it improve working people's lives and go from there rather than just sort of like holding to certain ideological positions again it's a different thing being an activist and a different thing actually being in office and there's always going to be tension there because the the two groups are always going to be saying you know the, the person in office will be saying no no well you don't understand i can't do this this is the most i can go activists will be saying no you can go a lot further and n neither of those is going to be right all the time both of them are going to be wrong. I think there were there were certain things that that as his mayalty progressed that he that Sanders was wrong on the waterfront issue, the Billington waterfront, which is seen as his great legacy in the city because he protected it from sort of being developed, you know, for business purposes. Okay, thanks for coming. Uh, I'd like to make a, a statement on the waterfront, and I'll be happy to answer questions that people might have on any subject. <clears throat> Five years ago. Uh, when I campaigned for mayor of the city of Burlington, I made a pledge that I would do all that I could to help create a people-oriented downtown waterfront project that would be open to all of the people of the city of Burlington, uh, regardless of their income. He initially for the next accepted a much more conciliatory that plan that was that was to more favorable to, to business, and he was he said, "No, no, no, I I can't do any better than this. You, you understand?" But the city basically rejected it and and forced him to have actually end up with a much better deal. Uh, now people view it as like mm -hmm. this is the great thing that he achieved, but of course he had to be pushed into it. Mm -hmm. Another. Uh, thing I would say is that it's uh, his case, I think, is a really good example of why it's important to to not give up entirely on electoralism. It should not be the, the, the be-all and end-all. It should not be the only thing. A lot of work that has to be done, you know, protest and agitation and everything. But giving up on electoralism entirely, which I think has been, unfortunately, the position of, <laughs> of at least large parts of the left for decades until Sanders roughly until Sanders ran in 2016 and you had Corbyn come up. I think it really shows why it's important to try and build some sort of power, build some sort of electoral success. I mean, for a socialist to win the mayalty of a the biggest city in a relatively conservative state at the start of the Reagan revolution and through it is incredible. And what did it lead to? I mean, it ultimately led to the, the runs that he made in 2016 and 2020, which are not the only reason that the left has had a revival in the US and elsewhere, but they were a big part of it. another episode of blueprints 
I hope you enjoyed our slightly random detour into 1980s USA. We've got plenty of episodes in the works, including a couple more international ones, but mainly focusing on local campaigns. It really does help other people find the show if you can go to the Blueprints feed in your podcast app and leave us a five-star review, saying something like, great podcast. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, at Blueprints Pod. We'll be back in June. Kia